This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer and thanks for joining me for Between the Lines. Now, later in the program, my guest will be the non-compliant, outspoken, provocative and popular writer, Lionel Shriver. There's a huge audience for the anti-woke position. The mistake I think the uh, literati make in putting these events together is imagining that first off everyone has the same hard left opinions. It's boring to have all your writers think and say the same things. And by the way, it's also boring for them to write the same things. That's Lionel Shriver. Her first non-fiction book, Abominations, selected essays from a career courting self-destruction. That's coming up on Between the Lines. But first, is the US focus on a declining Russia undermining the US effort to hedge against a rising China? Richard Fontaine, a former US foreign policy official, is chief executive of the New American Security. That's a Washington-based think tank. He's in Australia this week as a guest of the Lowy Institute. Hello, Richard. Welcome back to the program. Good to talk with you. Now, President Biden, now he was at a Democratic fundraiser at James Murdoch's New York home just recently, and he raised, President Biden raised, the threat of nuclear Armageddon Uh, only for his staff later to say they had no new information on the Kremlin's intentions. Richard, was that the right message of deterrence to send to Putin? I don't think that was a message of deterrence, and I would be surprised if that was in the written talking points handed to the president when he made that comment. I think he was probably trying to characterize the severity of the situation, which is to say I think the chances that Putin will use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine are small, but they're certainly higher than they were, and they're higher than we should be comfortable with. And, uh, you know, this is a, it's a dicey moment, and uh, we have to be pretty uh, careful in how things proceed from here on. Well, Putin has threatened to use technical nukes. Uh, is it clear that Moscow believes in the credibility of the U.S. nuclear deterrent? Oh, I think so. They're not threatening to use nukes against the United States um, because they know how that story would end. And nor are they threatening to use nuclear weapons or any sort of a weapon against NATO territory because I think they know how that would end as well. And so despite the fact that the arms supplies into Ukraine have traveled across NATO territory, the Russians haven't attacked NATO. Uh, What they're threatening to do is do something in Ukraine and the United States has not publicly spelled out what the consequences would be for that. Yeah, but Biden's warnings of consequences, that didn't stop Putin from invading Ukraine earlier this year, right? Right. It it hasn't. And it's unclear whether the threat of consequences would stop Putin from using a tactical nuclear weapon either. I think the motivations for him to do the two different things are different. I mean, he seems to think that he Russians really would be greeted as liberators and that he could quickly uh, take over a large swath of Ukrainian territory. Here, the battlefield utility of a nuclear weapon, God forbid he actually uses it, is highly in doubt. He would be doing it, obviously, for some sort of psychological shock effect and whether that would actually provoke the West and the Ukrainians to back down or actually to become fierce in their resistance. Uh, I think that's a very open question. I think the latter is much more likely. Okay, back to Biden. Now, at this James Murdoch cocktail fundraiser for the Democrats, the president also asked, what's Putin's off-ramp? I mean, is there any evidence to suggest the Americans are trying to give Russia 
that's clearly humiliated here, uh, an avenue of escape so we can avoid the very nuclear Armageddon that Biden's warned about. Well, I think that there was a return to the February 28th status quo ante, even though that would leave Crimea in the hands of the Russians and territories in the east in the hands of Russian partisans. Um, at least that would be the basis for negotiation. The United States and the Ukrainians would never accept the Russian possession of these Ukrainian territories. Um, but I, obviously we're not there now because Russia's in possession and actively trying to say that they're annexing additional territory and linking it into the Russian Federation. So uh, in the in the short run, I don't think that there's I mean, any negotiations and there's not an identifiable off-ramp. But down the line, uh, with the diminishment of Russian forces in Ukrainian territory, there might be. The diminishment of Russian forces. I mean, are we surprised how weak Russia has been, relatively speaking? I mean... You're in Washington, uh, the so-called Washington foreign policy establishment that uh, President Obama's national security advisor, Ben Rhodes, he wants to write it as uh, the blob. Uh, and these are both Democrats and Republicans. I mean, does this establishment ever wonder why Western intelligence has grossly overstated Russian power? Yeah, um, sure. And of course, Putin himself grossly overstated Russian power, which is why he did things in the first instance, which proved completely uh, unwinnable and, and unsuccessful and had to try to adjust. I mean, really, what was at issue in terms of the intelligence, the intelligence foretold with almost perfect accuracy, the kinds of things Putin was planning on doing, and then even made those things public. What they were unable to do was to determine the will to fight, the will to fight either among Russians or Ukrainians. You can count up stuff, weapons, tanks, numbers of people. You can see where they move, things like that. It's pretty hard to say, and we saw this with Afghanistan as well, to say when, a, when an army will have morale problems, when they'll be willing to fight and when they won't. And it turned out that the Russian will to fight was overestimated and the Ukrainian will to fight underestimated. And that's a big part of the story. And yet for we years, and yet for years, the Washington policy consensus was that Putin was bent on conquering Ukraine and incorporating it into a greater Russian empire. Surely this crisis raises the question so much for being a serious conventional military threat to Europe. Well, I mean, he has tried to conquer. This is a war of conquest. He tried to take Kiev. Is it? Of course, he tried to take Kiev. He has literally annexed territory that did not belong to Russia, that belongs to Ukraine, and has done this through force and tried to occupy that with his military forces. Um, I mean, this is a classic land war of conquest, um, which in which Russia is trying to augment its territory at the expense of Ukraine. So that was right. Um, you know, the the thing going forward is that the conventional Russian military capability has proven far uh, less effective than everyone, I think, including Vladimir Putin himself thought. And it's becoming less effective by the day with the destruction of this. And so that in turn, I think, will mean that the Russians will rely more on the high end and the low end of what they have in their capabilities, the high end being the nuclear side and the low end being the asymmetric kind of stuff, cyber and things like that. But back to Putin's will and intent, if you look at his major statements, the, the July 21 article, uh, those speeches that he gave in February before the invasion, is there any evidence that he thought conquering and occupying Ukraine was desirable and feasible and that he was even interested in conquering Ukraine, much less planning to do it? Well, yes, because he did it. I mean, you could look at his well, statements. Well, he's, I mean, he's attacked Ukraine. He hasn't conquered it. 
Well, not because he didn't try to. I mean, you know, he tried to take Kiev and tried to detach Kiev in the eastern part of Ukraine from the rest. He, again, has literally annexed portions of Ukrainian territory. I mean, you can look at his statements, but among his statements were, the, Russia is not going to invade Ukraine. This is all made up by the West. This is untrue. We're not going to do this. And of course, he did it. So, I, I mean, you well, have to take the, poop, the statements of intent um, by Vladimir Putin with a truckload of salt. Now, Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago, he's been on this program several times, and he's, he says in those statements, Putin makes it pretty clear that he accepts the geopolitical realities that followed from the breakup of the Soviet Union and that he, Putin, recognises that Ukraine is an independent state, but he will wreck it. He'll wreck it if it's seen as part of the Western security umbrella. How would you respond to Professor Mearsheimer? Well, he's done more than wreck it. He's certainly trying to wreck it, but he's also trying to take territory. He Crimea was Ukrainian territory as agreed to by Russia in the Budapest Memorandum, among other things. And then, of course, years ago, they detached Crimea um, through a special operations invasion and annexed it to the Russian Federation. They have now done the same thing in the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, and so there's no reason to think that his appetite uh, is only in the four provinces that they've annexed. So um, I don't see how you can square the forcible annexation of another country's territory with the statement that he has no desire for conquest, he just wants to wreck the place. If you look at the organisation of the Russian army, and this is Mearsheimer's point, it was not designed for offensive action. It was organised for protecting Russia from attack, which meant readiness was low. And really, there wasn't nearly enough forces in that army to conquer a huge piece of real estate like Ukraine, right? Right, that's why it didn't work. Yes, but the Russians went into Ukraine with 190,000 troops at the most. That's a tiny force. Right, bad idea. And the Nazis went into Poland in 1939 with 1.5 million troops. That was a bad idea too. But why, why would Putin do such a thing? Where's the intent? Well, you're asking the wrong to... guy uh, why Putin would go in. But this is why um, there was such scepticism before the war began that he was going to go to Kiev. I mean, Americans know what it's like to try to hold and occupy territory in which the people who live there don't want to be uh, occupied by your military. I mean, it's pretty hard. And you get an insurgency, if not active military and organized resistance. Putin went in, tried to take Kiev, didn't work, got into a 40-mile traffic jam on the road north of Kiev. That didn't work either. And what he got was the government not fleeing and the resistance. So as a military concept, it looked from the very beginning like it wouldn't work under any circumstances. And that led to skepticism he would do it in the first place. As it turned out, he did it anyway. Um, and it seems like Putin had three big uh, assumptions that he came into this with. One was that the, the Russian military had modernized since the 2008 war in Georgia. It was much more uh, capable than he believed, uh, or that, that it turned out to be. Two was that Ukrainians really kind of do see themselves as one civilization with Russia and Kiev, Rus and all this stuff and be greeted as liberators. This was a puppet government in Kiev which just would flee. And three, that the international community would acquiesce to the new reality and wouldn't contest it in the way that it has. And of course, all three of those assumptions were totally wrong. Tom Switzer here from Between the Lines, and my guest is Richard Fontaine, a former advisor to Republican Senator and presidential candidate John McCain. He's in Australia as a guest of the Lowy Institute. Richard, uh, where do we in Australia fit into the Ukraine campaign? The Australians have provided, I believe it's something on the order of $450 million um, in military assistance to the Ukrainian forces, Bushmasters and things like that. There's been an offer uh, I think in the last few days to train Ukrainian 
troops outside of Ukraine, not inside the country, but probably in somewhere like the UK or things like that. And of course, Australia has joined the sanctions along with all the G7 countries, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, others in uh, this um, sort of anti-aggression coalition. So Australia has played a a key role so far. You know, Australia has an army of less than 30,000 personnel, uh, you know, large continent to defend. We exist in a very turbulent region, increasingly more so because of China's rise. So why is Ukraine? What do you think both sides of politics, both the coalition in opposition and Labor in power, why for them is Ukraine in Australia's national interest? Because the cardinal rule of the international order such as it exists, which is not always effective in regulating the behaviour of states as we know, but is more effective than having the law of the jungle, the cardinal rule is against forcible conquest, the territorial uh, theft of, of another country's um, territory. And of course, that's what we're seeing now. If Russia were to uh, go through with this, do it successfully and, um, and escape unpunished, then the lesson to the next would-be aggressor would be that this is uh, the benefit could outweigh the cost of doing it. Australia, just like everyone else, has a strong interest in maintaining the rules and showing that there are serious costs and that these kinds of activities are not going to be successful. Okay, but how did Australia and the United States respect that very rules-based international order when we were part of a coalition to invade a sovereign state in Iraq in 2003 and left it in a disgraceful shambles? Well, I, I think there's a couple answers to that. One, I mean, we, you could do the what about um, Iraq and, and lots of other examples, um, which would never you know, relieve the uh, problems that we face in Russia. With Iraq, obviously, we didn't annex the state. We didn't take their territory. Um, that's what Russia is yeah, but hang doing. On, America invaded and occupied Iraq without any UN mandate. Well, there was a UN mandate under Article 7 that passed in 1991. Saddam Hussein and his regime had not fulfilled the terms which was necessary to relieve the Article 7 uh, authorization. And so under the terms of that, the United States had the international legal authority to move in 2003. So I think as a legal matter, um, the United States had international law on its side and what it did in 2003 as a legitimacy matter, it certainly didn't because they tried to get another UN Security Council resolution and it failed. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the forcible annexation of, of Ukrainian territory and the uh, invasion of Iraq, I would put in two different categories because I think both the motivations and the activities involved uh, were very different. Richard, I often ask guests on this program who strongly support the NATO mission against Russia, and we've had plenty of them over the last few months, and I ask them this question. Doesn't the US diplomatic and strategic focus on Ukraine against a declining Russia, you know, it's a declining Russia, doesn't that hurt US efforts to hedge against a rising China? No, it helps them because if China wants to do to Taiwan something akin to what Russia is doing to Ukraine. China will be looking to the world to see what kind of response there is, punitive Mm -hmm. or non-punitive for Russian actions and trying to learn the lesson and try to fact that into his own thinking. Russia, uh, and and trying to look at Russia's success or lack of success and how the world reacts and making that possible or less possible. The degree to which we can bolster the rules by punishing Russia for its actions and making it less successful than it would be otherwise, that is going to be absorbed by the Chinese and hopefully make them less likely to act aggressively than they would otherwise. Okay, so you don't think that 
that Ukraine, the Ukraine commitment and the uh, the mission itself uh, the, and all the strategic focus uh, in Washington, that does not undermine the US pivot to Asia, which many people might say just makes it easier for China to invade Taiwan. No, it hasn't so far. I mean, there's been an increase of 20,000 American troops out of, you know, an active force of 1.4 million um, in, in Europe to bolster the... Uh, Poland and Romania and some of the allies in the in Europe's east. I don't expect that to be a permanent augmentation of the American force posture there. If you look at the longer run here, um, a diminished and less capable Russia that has a harder time being disruptive and making war on its neighbors will be one that is less consuming of American resources in Europe and therefore uh, free up the United States to focus more on Asia. The real question is, when do we get to that long run? Uh, okay. and, and that, yeah. I don't know. Well, this is it. I mean, let me put this to you. This is the Pentagon last year. China wants military facilities in several regional states in Asia to support naval, air, ground, cyber, space power. Now, they include not just Cambodia, but Thailand. And remember, Thailand is a US ally. Let me say this again. Yet Washington is so focused on Ukraine and remember, from an American perspective, very little trade with Ukraine, a country that represents no serious overriding strategic interest. And look at China. It's busily flexing its muscles across the region. Yeah, the United States is a global power. It's not a regional power. It's not going to say we don't care what happens in Europe, no matter how uh, violative it is of the rules-based order, or we don't care what happens in the Western Hemisphere, the Middle East, because all we can do is to focus on China and what it's doing in the Indo-Pacific. We, you know, I mean, despite the fact that there's been a large focus and lots of resources going to Europe, there's also been since February 24th and even before then a lot of focus on China and on the Indo-Pacific and on diplomacy that is trying to avoid having China's uh, basing strategy uh, be enacted, certainly in the region, but elsewhere it has a global basing strategy. But the notion that the United States is just going to forswear its engagement in significant ways in the rest of the world in order to become a regional power is just not going to Happen. Okay, but surely there are real limits on US power in a world that's no longer unipolar. Or, or, Richard, let me put it to you this way. You had the debacles of Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, Syria. Surely, and we saw this with the Trump and the Bernie Sanders phenomenon in 2016, surely Washington would want to reorder priorities in favour of greater discrimination and selectivity. Yeah, I think they have. Um, I mean, you know, the... the well, two hang on, you're talking about Ukraine and China and the Persian Gulf. They're three major theatres that America is the balancer of first resort. Right, but there's not equal engagement across the entirety of those theatres. I mean, there's the identification of the particular problems or opportunities in those theatres, and I think a greater focus on what those are. So it's obviously China and... Uh, in the Indo-Pacific and what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Um, the United States is not looking to get into bigger wars akin to 160,000 American troops deployed to Iraq, as once was the case mm. uh, in the Middle East. And, you know, even within Asia, I think, you know, for example, with North Korea, I mean, Donald Trump had the idea that he was going to attack North Korea and, as he said at the UN, wipe it off the face of the earth. And then he had the idea that he was going to devote huge diplomatic bandwidth at the personal level to seal a big deal with Kim Jong-un. You don't see the kind of, uh, that kind of sort of consuming the American bandwidth now. So, you know, it's, you, don't, you shouldn't just look at broad regions and say, well, you add this region and this region and this region is too much for the Americans. You look at what the United States is actually trying to accomplish in those and what issues it is and isn't engaged in. What about America's very real divisions and the toxic polarisation that characterises 
Washington discourse. I often use this quote on this program, but it's uh, it's uh, Bob Gates, the Defence Secretary to Presidents uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and he said about a decade ago, well before Trump, he said that the greatest national security threat to the United States is not from Russia, it's not from China, it's not from the Islamic State Sunni jihadists, it's not the Shia sectarian regime of Iran. The greatest national security threat to the United States this is Bob Gates, is the two square miles between the Washington White House and the Washington Capitol building. Richard Fontaine. Yeah, there's a lot of truth in that, unfortunately. I mean, look, I spent seven years of my life working in the U.S. Senate, most of them for Senator John McCain, and what I saw on January 6th, I never Mm. thought in a million years I would see. I mean, the idea that a, a mob would storm the Capitol, kill people, call for the hangings of the vice president and try to prevent the certification of an election that was free and fair was pretty unthinkable, but this is the world that we're in. And um, yeah, it's it's a real problem, uh, certainly for America's role in the world and for our reputation, but you know, above and all for Americans themselves that have to live in a world where uh, many in both of the parties would rather fight with each other than try to figure out how to get things done. Richard, always great to test wits with each other. Thanks for having me. It's always great talking with you. That was Richard Fontaine, head of the Centre for a New American Security in Washington. He's in Australia as a guest of the Lowy Institute. Up next, the Japanese view on Russia, Ukraine and China. Well, we often hear what Americans and indeed Europeans think about the Ukraine crisis. But what about the view from Japan? To find out, let's turn to Professor Iwashita Hakihiro from the Slavic Eurasian Research Centre at Hokkaido University in Japan. Now, why do you think Vladimir Putin launched the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Ukraine is a special a country for Russia, Putin thinks. Because of the we are brothers, we are same nations. But this is a completely fiction because of the Ukraine has been influenced many countries, empires, Lithuania, Poland, and Habsburg, and Ottomans, and others, except Russia. I think it's a different nation. Okay, but the conventional wisdom in the West is that uh, Putin was bent on conquering and occupying Ukraine, incorporating it into a greater Russian empire. Do you agree with that? No, because Ukraine is a big country, second largest, third largest in Europe, I think, many populations. So it's impossible to conquer all of the Ukrainian territory. Just Putin wants to make a puppet mm. government to be friend with Russia. How do you account for Ukraine's stunning counteroffensive against Russia? Uh, because of the, if we back to the history of Ukraine, they truly sacrificed by neighbors surrounding. Ukraine has a variety, but they shared similar histories. It's Russian revolutions and the Bolshevik occupied. 
and after that Nazi came mm -hmm. and Stalin's back. Mm -hmm. So the, they share this part of history. But many people that died, killed, uh, particularly under the Horrid War, it's a uh, famine terror. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, of course, Jewish is a uh, masquerade. Mm -hmm. If they do not fight, they surrendered. Of course, they are killed and expelled to the Siberia or other place. Or if they fight, they would be dead. But any choice, they should be fight. Yes. What about Russia's strategic sensibilities? I mean, from the Kremlin's perspective, they see NATO expansion, EU expansion, the West support for so-called color revolutions in Ukraine and elsewhere in that region. They see that as an existential threat to Russia. And of course, Ukraine is a flat terrain that Napoleonic France, Nazi Germany, they crossed to attack Russia. So does Russia have legitimate security interests? It's a simple, too simplified idea. <laughs> because do you know when the Baltic states joined in NATO 2004. Mm -hmm. uh, the, so many countries, it, it's a crossed. But then Putin, what did he do? He did not discuss so much about NATO expansion. Of course, he showed dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. But he rather want to have a good relation with NATO or always West. But he changed mind later. Even the uh, color revolution, you say, mm -hmm. those days, Putin did not criticize so much uh, because this is a corruption. Well, hang on. He did criticize the Maidan revolution in 2014, which he says prompted the Russian intervention 2000, in Crimea. 2014. Color revolution in the mid of 2000s. Right. It's a Lord's revolution, tulip revolution, orange revolution in Ukraine. Those days, so the domestic corruption was a key. Putin did not so strongly, clearly say this is a proto-West. 2014, this is a starting point of the current situation. It's a different. My guest is Professor Akihiro Iwashita from Hokkaido University in Japan. Now, Professor, many Australians say we must defeat Russia in Ukraine because it serves as a warning to China, which is clearly a rising great power with plenty of reach and influence in our neighbourhood. Your thoughts? I think that this is a different issue. So the Asia-Europe, uh, in a, under globalised contemporary international relations, we sometimes overlapped over the different areas. Well, for example, in the United States, Washington strategic thinkers, long time, uh, Russia belongs to the target of European extension. But uh, China is a completely Asia. If you look at the map of the United States, United States East Coast Center map, <laughs> the edge of Russia, another edge of China, not linked. Mm. Uh, but recently, uh, they have good corporations. Uh, the how to manage it, we should think of that. But uh, the different areas, still it works. Think of Russian things, but we do not need to confuse the China things. Okay, doesn't Washington's focus 
and its overwhelming strategic priority on Europe and Ukraine against Russia, doesn't that distract attention from Asia, where China genuinely poses a serious threat to US strategic primacy? Are you worried about that? No, uh, because the, even in the Cold War period, so the uh, NATO and the uh, United States, it's a very hard relation with Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc. But same time, United States involved so deep in Asia, particularly East Asia and the China Korean Peninsula. So it means that it's a uh, United States has always prepared for two front manage. Okay, but surely there are limits to U.S. power in a complicated world that is no longer unipolar. You think of the disasters in the Middle East. Don't you think that saps American prestige and credibility and willpower? It's a good question. This is a Middle East. Middle East is very complex, but in East Asia, the uh, United States has a good ally, Japan. <laughs> in Europe, uh, of course, it's kind of inside, it's kind of complex, but EU or NATO. So the, uh, this Europe and East Asia, it's uh, different in other, other places. Central Asia, Middle East, Africa, it's uh, completely different. The debate in Australia has changed dramatically in recent years. Uh, a clear majority of Australians, and this is the bipartisan consensus in Canberra, is that those days are over and our leaders are right to adopt a more sceptical tone towards China. What's your sense about the Australian debate from Japan's perspective? First of all, we should think of the difference of geopolitics seen between Australia and Japan. If we hate or if we like, we Japanese should live together with China's neighbours. Australia is uh, away from China influence still. Even the China goes down and uh, enters the Pacific uh, zone. Australia has uh, many choices. But if we think of the future orientations, even now the uh, world is shrinking, so the uh, space is narrowed. Of course, nature space is the same, but human technologies narrowed space. Mm. So the Australia would become neighbor of China. Mm. Mm. So in this sense... There's no uh, tyranny of distance, in other words. Yeah. In this sense, uh, Japan and uh, Australia would share the common future of this in the context. So anyway, China neighbors, uh, what we should, of course, uh, be cautious about China's. Uh, so it's a kind of dilemma. Mm. But we share the mission. Thanks so much for being on ABC Radio. Thank you. That was Professor Iwashita Hakihiro from the Slavic Eurasian Research Center at Hokkaido University in Japan. Up next, how a popular and provocative writer weathers the storm when her controversial comments cause outrage on social media. Well, her journalism is very bracing, says The Guardian. 
The Australian Financial Review calls her relentlessly contrarian. Oddly unpredictable is how the Washington Post calls her writing, and that's what keeps her interesting. According to the Sunday Times, she's the scourge of a virtue-signalling, no-platforming literary world. And, and this is my favourite, this is the Wall Street Journal, a rare voice, someone who challenges orthodoxies in the way that many journalists and public intellectuals claim to do, but don't. Well, as these observations make clear, Lionel Shriver is a provocative and very popular writer, and she's difficult to pigeonhole ideologically. A lifelong US Democrat, she cried on the night of Donald Trump's victory in 2016. She's also a pro-Brexit, anti-lockdown, anti-woke warrior. Lionel Shriver is an award-winning novelist and author, most recently, of Abominations, her first non-fiction book, and this is the subheading, Selected Essays from a Career of Courting Self-Destruction. <laughs> it's just out, published by Harper. Lionel, lovely to be with you again. Oh, it's nice to talk to you again, too. Now, you're an international bestseller of novels, yet the organisers of writers' festivals, they don't really like you anymore. Why? I'm non-compliant. <laughs> um, <laughs> these people aren't very brave. And the truth is uh, they're doing themselves a disservice because there's a huge audience for the anti-woke position. It's actually most people. And uh, the mistake I think uh, the uh, literati make in putting these events together is imagining that first off, everyone has the same, you know, hard left opinions. And also that what people want is a, an ideologically monochrome event. Whereas actually most people like conflict and action and change and variety and contrast. It's boring to have all your writers think and say the same things. And by the way, it's also boring for them to write the same things. So these festival groups, and there are a lot of them in Australia, they're big on gender diversity, for instance, but not ideological diversity. That's your point. Yeah, and it's, it's not really giving the audience what they want. Well, many of our listeners won't forget the controversy in 2016. This was the Brisbane Writers' Festival. You gave the keynote address and you criticise, and you talk about this in your book, you criticise the notion of cultural appropriation. Now, for those tuning in who aren't aware of this term, uh, it's the apparent inappropriate adoption of an element of one culture or identity by members of another culture or identity. Now, that speech, Lionel, as you well know, it provoked a walkout from one aggrieved left-wing writer. It provoked a Twitter storm and then worldwide media coverage. Now, that was in 2016. Why have the restrictions of cultural expression worsened since then? Well, I feel a little guilty because um, insofar as I had any influence on the popularity <laughs> of this, to me, fake taboo, I probably spread it further. Um, <laughs> and that was not my intention. I was hoping to nip. Yeah, you made a bad situation it. worse. It's. I think it's a goofball notion. The truth is that cultures. You can't put a fence around cultures. They overlap like crazy. They are constantly borrowing from each other, and that's a, a highly productive 
uh, enterprise. It's one of the things that makes cities so interesting to live in. Uh, and when it comes to fiction, the last thing we need to encourage fiction writers to do is to not extend themselves to others and people who are not like them and just write about themselves. That's what they want to do naturally anyway. And so this artificial prohibition against writing about people who are different uh, means that you're making the the fictional world fundamentally reduced to, to memoir. My concern is is as much for the audience as as it is for the the writer. The audience does not want to only read memoir, and there are there are a lot of um, you know great works of art uh, that would not exist if we applied this rubric. That you know you you can't write about what does not belong to you. Uh, a series like The Wire would never be made by a a white scriptwriter. Uh, or a, a book like Quackers. I mean, it's a great book. Uh, I love that series. But we would we would decide, oh no, that's no no. You can't write about black people. They don't belong to you. And I I just I find the whole idea unworkable and obnoxious. And illiberal. Now the Guardian reviewer of your latest book, Rachel Cook, uh, she lamented quote, whatever the reading public may feel, and clearly your books are very popular, the organisers of these writers' festivals, they just don't like you anymore, whether they uh, care to admit it or not. Following on from that, I mean, have you been invited to any writers' festivals in Australia since 2016? Well, I have to say I was uh, a participant in the Canberra uh, Festival this last summer, remotely. It was a Remote. Much, yeah. much shorter trip <laughs> to my desk. <laughs> <laughs> so good, you know, good for them. So yeah. I can't yeah. say that I have been completely ignored. It's not as if I have a chip on my shoulder. Now, the Cato Institute, it's a Washington-based think tank. They published a poll. It was conducted by Emily Eakins. Um, she headed the polling program at Cato, and she's been a past guest on this program, uh, certainly when this poll was published. And the poll found that more than half of Americans have become afraid to voice their opinions freely for fear of retaliation or severe criticism, you're clearly not one of them. But that's a striking poll figure. More than half of Americans have become afraid to speak their mind. Lionel. Yes, and and I think that we have to take some responsibility for this. That is, the only way you fight back against a, a climate like that is to speak your mind anyway. And because we're all participants in that climate and all these people keeping their mouths shut and not saying what they really think are, are contributing to the environment in which you can't say what you really think. It's, it's kind of a feedback loop. And I, I try to interfere with that loop. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm just naturally foolhardy, uh, but I won't keep my mouth shut. You know, that's not my job. In fact, it's in defiance of my job to self-censor all the time. You know, writers are supposedly creative and experimental, and they're, 
They should be trying on ideas for size, even if they later, later for, reject them. You're trying to make an impact. The more people there are in the world, the harder it is to stand out. And that means you, you, have, to, you have to be brave. And I would say maybe that extends to ordinary people, you know, if there's such a thing. You have warned that left liberals in America should watch what they say because it riles Trumpists tired of, quote, being told what they can and cannot say. I think I would clarify that it's not so much that they need to watch what they say. I want them to say whatever they want. But uh, their authoritarian impulses and their excesses of ideological fervor are fuel for the other side. And there's no question of that. When they go off the deep end about all these different expressions that 10 minutes ago were just fine and suddenly you can't say, well, it creates resentment. And it's not just just a matter of, you know, feeding the far right. The, the battle in the United States right now is, is, is for the middle. The people who determine elections in the United States, especially national elections, are the independent voters, and they're mostly centrists. They're not extremists. When you are extreme, you're going to alienate the people who are going to make the decisions. So I'm I'm just saying, you know, when you make yourself ridiculous, then clearly you you are giving fodder to the enemy. Your critics, such as the Washington Post reviewer of your book, they say, well, he said, Rest assured, Lionel, the Trumpists are already rolled up and saying what they want anyhow. So why go to those lengths to warn liberals that they should be careful because it might just roll up the Trumpists of being told what they can and cannot say? I have no problem with the left expressing what they think. In fact, sometimes (laughs) that does a favor for everyone because you find out how crackers they are they'll hang themselves. So that's one of the good things about people saying their mind. In fact, you can say that about anybody. I want everyone to be able to express themselves. That doesn't mean that they're going to be persuasive or not expose aspects of their thinking, which is ugly or silly. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the more speech, the better. Okay, now you've been a critic of cancel culture. Your critics, just keeping with them for a moment, they'd say that the existence of your new book, Abominations, which is available in all good bookstores across Australia, they'd say that um, the fact that it's being published, reviewed widely and sold, that's proof that cancel culture does not really exist. How would you respond to those critics, Lionel? Well, I have for some time now made it clear that the only reason I'm still standing is not because of my own personal persistence and, and and some kind of special bravery or armor or formula. Cancel culture's out there. There are plenty of people who don't like what I say or oppose my positions and would love me to go away. The only reason I'm still on the scene is that the people who publish me have stood behind me. That includes my mm-hmm. publisher, HarperCollins, and especially uh, the magazine I have a column in, The British Spectator. 
Fraser Nelson, the spectator editor whom you just referred to, and you actually dedicate your book to Fraser and his fellow editors who never delete your jokes. (laughs) Yes, I can't tell you how grateful I am for that. The truth is that if if people in positions of authority uh, would act as if they are in authority and use the power they have to be loyal to the writers and artists and journalists that that they publish, uh, we wouldn't have cancel culture. Cancel culture is ultimately a failure of people at the top. It is cowardice, rampant cowardice by people who should know better and are, are in a position to weather Twitter storms easily. You just ignore it and wait for it to go away. But instead, you know, you've got CEOs and publishers uh, just saying, oh, oh, this is this makes us look bad, you know, fire her ass. And I I just that's where the problem lies, not so much in social media. It's the people who are paying attention to social media that are the problem. Yes, I think a strong argument can be made that social media, particularly the Twitter sphere, has just debased public discourse. And you avoid social media, especially Twitter, don't you? All of it. Yeah, I just don't do it. There are not enough hours yeah. in the day. Yeah. And I, I, I know myself well enough that I would be vulnerable <laughs> to, you know, reading this, that and the other thing and ending up walking down the street. You know, when he said, you know, well, well. <laughs> I, just, I, I don't want that life. I don't want to be contaminated in that way. My guest is Lionel Shriver, whose international best-selling books of fiction include We Need to Talk About Kevin. Now, that's about a mother coming to grips with her son committing mass murder at school. It was turned into a psychological thriller drama film. That was in 2011. Lionel, what about The Hounding of J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter series author? Uh, She is, as you say, as woke as they come, but she's copped the full flaming rage of the Twittersphere. Oh, I think this is a fascinating instance of uh, ideological cannibalism. It's the left eating their own. And I mean, previous to this break with her over believing in the reality of biological sex and the defense of all female spaces in discrete instances, which you would think is an extremely moderate position. Previous to that, Mm. she was as woke as they come. And and now, Mm. now she's total persona non grata. It's fascinating. First off, I think that the left especially enjoys going after people who are who are with whom they are most kindred. It's the it's the next door neighbor. It's not the person across town that you want to bring down. She's also a good uh, example of uh, the uncancelable. That is. There, there are a few CEOs at the top who uh, recognize that it's in their commercial interest to be loyal. She makes too much money to fire. Yeah, and I think it also shows how the transgender debate has become so fraught. You live in Britain. 
uh, these days, Lionel. Let me put the following to you. There have been four prime ministers in six years. I mean, I remember the Brits used to make fun of us for changing prime ministers quickly. You've had four prime ministers in six years. The UK economy is the worst performing in the OECD. Inflation's tipped to go as high as 13%. Got public confidence in British institutions. They're very low. Uh, as you document in your book, there's a woke revolution in arts and culture. How do you account for this grim state of British affairs, especially since the Brexit vote, vote which you, Lionel, supported? Well, of course, you don't have to tell me how shite it is here because I live here. <laughs> so um, I don't think But the it's particularly got worse rival, since Brexit, though, hasn't it? You know, there's a huge confound in that, and you know what it is. Because on the very heels of leaving the EU, COVID hit. I'm not sure it was quite as bad as Australia, um, but it was pretty close. And it spent grotesque amounts of money paying people not to work. And that has put the country in fantastically poor straits. And now, you know, with rampant inflation, because of all that money printing, uh, interest rates are going to have to go up, which will drive mortgage rates up and which will drive the budget, the national budget, even higher, uh, having to pay interest on the national debt. And then there's this energy crisis on top of it. None of this stuff is Brexit. Now, some of it is Britain's fault. Britain has had an, a dysfunctional energy policy for the last 20, 25 years, uh, and now it, now it matters. I don't think we'll ever know quite what the pure effect of Brexit is on on the UK because you know it's not a controlled experiment and all of this other stuff is happening at the same time. Now that said, you know even what even back in the day uh, when it was the biggest issue going here, I conceded and many other Brexiteers conceded that there may well be a short and even medium term economic sacrifice to leaving the EU. So it wasn't to make the economy better that motivated leaving the EU. It was to get out from under an autocratic, supranational organization that was anti-democratic and power hungry. Uh, I advocate more localized power. I think it's safer. I prefer national national sovereignty just to supranational sovereignty. You know, for an American, that's a perfectly moderate position. It's not radical, and it's much left is it, it mm. much less is it far right or something. Uh, the United States would never join an organization like the EU in a million years, um, which I, I find it ironic that so many liberal Americans uh, think the EU is so wonderful. But they would, you know, if you ask, put it to them, you know, would you like your country to join? Uh, an organization whose laws trump yours, no, I don't think they'd have anything to do with it. The other crisis, of course, facing Britain is the crisis in Westminster. Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister, here's Nicola Sturgeon, she's uh, Scotland's First Minister, she said this week, it's taken the Tories just three weeks to realise that Liz Truss was a disaster. Lionel. Well, I really feel sorry for Liz Truss. I mean, I don't know her. I don't necessarily agree with her on absolutely everything, 
but she's not being given a chance. I've, I've never seen anything like it politically. Not only her opponents, that's, I guess, to be expected, but her colleagues have been totally disloyal and cruel and denunciatory. And for pity's sake, I mean, the last thing that the Tories need is yet another leadership election. So someone's mm. just not thinking about what they're doing. What she got into trouble over, okay, you know, I admit that the, the timing was politically not astute, but cutting the top rate of income tax was prudent. I mean, it, it's way too high. Uh, it discourages people who have money from moving here. And it's higher than it was during nearly 20 years of the labor government. So, uh, you know, what's the, it's the 45p tax rate that is the aberration. And, you know, bear in mind, it's only 45% is just the start of their national insurance and all manner of, you know, taxes on top. So that was actually a perfectly reasonable policy. Uh, trimming the lower tax rate by 1P, also fairly modest. As for it being unfunded, well, you know, a huge proportion of the of the budget is unfunded. That's what a deficit means. So I found the reaction disproportionate. And, and uh, from a particular faction in the Tory party, it was opportunistic. Well, the book is called Abominations, Selected Essays from a Career of Courting Self-Destruction. It's available at all good bookstores across Australia. Lionel, it's been terrific to chat again. Oh, I really enjoyed talking to you, Tom. That was the best-selling and award-winning novelist, Lionel Shriver. And that's the show, and thanks for listening. And if you missed any recent episodes of Between the Lines, including my recent conversation with the ANU's Greg Feely on the Bali bombing anniversary, Australia's relationship with Indonesia, now and then, scroll back through your recent podcast feeds, or of course you can just check out the excellent archive on the homepage. I'm Tom Spritzer. Until next time, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.